0: The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcralee.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Well, over the past couple of weeks, I've been reminded by my children that children are able to share truth in a bracingly direct sort of a way. Uh, my four-year-old said to me, Dad... When I'm a dad, will you be a grandpa? And I said, yes, son, when you're a dad, I would be a grandpa. And then he looked at me and he said, and then when I'm a grandpa, you'll be dead. <laughs> yes, I think, I think you will have contributed to that, but yes, that is true. On, on Monday, my uh, wife asked me to take that same child to get his hair cut, and I have no idea what I'm doing. So she gave me a picture I showed it to the lady, here's what my wife said we're supposed to do, you know. My son is sitting there and about halfway through the haircut, he looks at himself in the mirror and he looks at the lady and says, I think you need to look at the picture again. <laughs> uh, that's great. She took it well and I invited her to church right afterwards, so. <laughs> so today's passage is one of those ones that shares truth In a bracingly direct sort of a way. So we are actually now in 2 Timothy 1. If you have the Pew Bible, turn to page 1181. Okay, 1181. 2 Timothy 1 is one of these wonderful passages where God shares truth, but in a bracingly direct way. It's very encouraging. And it's bracingly direct in its encouragement. I don't want to bury the lead this morning. Here's what this passage is about. It tells us, that God has a power that enables you to face sickness, suffering, death, and disappointment, because Jesus has risen from the dead. There is a hope that God can give that can face anything. And that's why the title of today's sermon is Jesus Abolished Death and Brought Life. And we'll look at that from 2 Timothy 1, verses 9 through 10. And here we want to see how God at Easter gives us a preview of the promise of his power and purpose to overcome sin's curse, its consequences, suffering, and shame. This is a letter that God has inspired through the human author Paul, and Paul writes it to Timothy. Throughout the letter, the first seven verses, he talks about how God has changed his own life and how he's seen that God has changed Timothy's life, the sincere faith that Timothy has and how wonderful that is. And yet there's a pivotal verse, verse seven, where he wants to make sure that Timothy doesn't allow himself to give into fear. So if you have the Bible open, look in second Timothy one, verse seven. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self control. There's a power that comes from God that provides a hope that can face anything, but that hope is grounded in what God did through Jesus that we're remembering, especially today on Easter. So this morning in the passage, I want you to see how God's saving grace enables us to face even shame and suffering. Now the key words are going to be shame and suffering. They appear in verse 8 and they appear in verse 12. They're the main thing that he wants us to understand. Here's this hope that can overcome even shame. And suffering. So look with, with me in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But then we read, but share in suffering for the gospel. Shame, when we think of it, means to be embarrassed, potentially to be afraid of facing rejection or exclusion. Suffering means to face discomfort and disappointment, especially because of something we hold dear to. In this passage, he's talking about shame and suffering that comes through an association. On a much lighter note, we could say, imagine that teenager that is ashamed to be associated with their parents in public. They fear the suffering that may come with that because their parents represent values or quirks or idiosyncrasies that would be unpopular among their peer group. So their fear is an association That would bring shame or suffering on them. Notice in verse 8 what the association is. This is a shame or suffering because of an association with Jesus, with the testimony about him, with a prisoner in his name, with the gospel about him. Now first let me give a quick caution. Let's let's all admit here that some shame and suffering is self-inflicted, And it is sought. And that is not what he's talking about. Because he explains in First Timothy 2 that a Christian's desire and prayer is to live a godly and peaceable life. So Christians should not seek suffering and we should not self-inflict shame. But there is a shame and suffering that comes even though you didn't seek it. And even though you didn't want it. Just because you're associated with Jesus. And this shame and suffering is something that we actually don't need to fear because we have a hope that is overcoming. And that's what the heart of the passage is about today. I first want to remind us, though, how odd it is that he says in verse 8, share in suffering to our modern ears. In our culture today, if there's anything we want to avoid, it's discomfort. We live thinking the worst thing that could happen is that we could face suffering or shame. I just would want to say this morning, part of the reason we believe that, part of the reason we presuppose that, is because we've started to live as if life is what you make it. But I want to remind you that there's actually a fixed, objective reality far beyond anything you or I make. There's a hope far beyond this world. Life, thankfully, is much more than what you or I could make it. So this passage tells us that we can face suffering and we can overcome shame because of hope. And let's see the hope now. And that's the center of the passage. And that's why on the screen or in your Bible, we're going to look in verse 9 and 10 very slowly because I want you to see how wonderful this hope is. Verse 9 says in the Bible, who and that who is referring to God. He was the referent then of verse 8. So we could say God saved us and called us to a holy calling. I know that a lot of times when people read the word holy, they think of purity of behavior. And there are times in the Bible where it means that. But that's not what the grammar means here. Actually, a good way to translate it would be God saved us through the means of a holy calling. The idea is the way God saves is through bringing us out of something and to something. Remember, the word holy means to be set apart. So here's the idea. God saves us by reaching down and bringing us to himself. Holiness is not about avoiding bad things. It's about coming to believe in a person who gives all good things. Um, think about it this way. Imagine a father who thrust his hands into a thorny bush to pull his son out to the safety of his own person. Or a fireman who runs into a burning building, not merely to help someone escape, but to escape to safety on the other side. God saves not only to deliver us from perdition, but much more importantly, to bring us to the safety and joy of his own presence. God saves through a holy calling. But notice, on the basis of which he saves, this is really striking in verse 9, he saves not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. This is extremely important. God's salvation is done not in reference to anything we could do, have done, or ever would do. God's salvation is referenced to his own purpose and grace. My favorite thing about this particular verse is the word works is not modified with the word good. He's not saying you're not saved by good works. He's saying something much more than that. You're not saved by your works. Whatever they are, whether they're thought of as good or whether they're thought of as rebellion, we could say it this way. Human religion saves no one because our good works are never good enough. We're already condemned. On the other side, you might say, well, okay, I agree with that. I'm not trying to earn a relationship with God. I'm trying to ignore all the religiosity that I see in culture. I'm trying to escape that. But on the other side... That also does not save Human religion does not save But human rebellion does not save either We can't earn salvation Nor can we escape our need for it The issue is not the brand of our works The issue is that they are our works And therefore they are tinged with our sin And we cannot be made right with God On the basis of anything we do So then how can we be made right with God? The verse continues His own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. Salvation then has nothing to do with what you or I could do. It only has to do with what God has done through his son Jesus. Notice the salvation is secured before the ages began. In Greek, it means before time was even constructed. So this, again, has nothing to do with our efforts. It has Everything to do with God's grace. So what exactly did Jesus do? And here's what the verses wonderfully say. Let's continue now in verse 10 of Second Timothy 1. God saves in Christ Jesus. Those who are in Christ Jesus, verse 10, This is now manifest or revealed through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death. This is the first thing that Jesus did that you and I cannot do. Jesus Christ destroyed death. On the cross, he died the death we deserved, the consequences of which we cannot overcome. So Jesus took our place and secured our victory when he died our death, therefore abolishing death and its enmity and grip over us. But as we celebrate this morning, he did not stay dead. So the verse continues, He abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So I want to make sure I tell you then how you can get in on this this morning. If we're not saved by anything we could do, How then do we get in on the salvation that God does? And the answer is very simple. We trust not in an argument. We trust not in a concept. We trust not in an idea. We come to a person, and his name is Jesus. See, our hope is not in a concept to be learned, but a person to be trusted. Our hope is in Jesus. And because we're not saved by our works, that means we need to repent of the goodness that we think could make us be right before God. It also means we need to repent of the secret rebellion that makes us think there's another way. The only way, the only truth, and the only life is Jesus. This morning I want to remind you that we need to leave personal performance or personal reliance and trust solely in Jesus Christ. I read a prayer by someone who put their faith in Jesus, and here's what he said. I thought this was helpful, and this may help you this morning if you're wondering what this might sound like. Father, I've heard of Christ, Christ. I've intellectually believed in Jesus, but my heart's most fundamental trust was in my own competency and decency. But as far as I know my own heart today, I give my heart to you. I transfer my trust to you, and I ask that you would receive and accept me not for anything I have done or could do, but because of what Christ has done in my place. If you've not prayed that prayer with the meaning behind it, that's the kind of prayer someone prays when they come to transfer their trust to the only one who saves. So we repent not only of our sin, we repent of our self-reliance, even on our good works, and we come and we trust in Jesus. Now, I've had the joy of saying that from the Bible in a number of places, and over the years, there's a very common, recurring question that comes up to me. People will come and meet me after, or they'll email me, and they'll say something like this, Josh, it sounds like you're saying the Bible says we are saved totally, not of works we do, but of what Jesus has done in our place. And I say, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And then they say, but Josh, then what motivation would there be to live a good life if I no longer fear punishment? And here's an answer I would give. If the motivation you've had so far to live a good life is fear of punishment, then your motivation has never been love. Your motivation has only been self-protecting fear. See, the only time in your life you'll ever be able to live like someone who is actually doing fruitful good works is when they're no longer done in reference to your own benefit. When they're done in love for someone who did everything for you. Perhaps an illustration will help. There's an old story of a king who had a kingdom and one day a gardener came into his court and the gardener brought this big carrot that the gardener had planted. And he gave it to the king and said, oh, king, you are a gracious and good king, and I love you, and I've made this carrot for you. And the king esteemed the good intention of this man's heart and said, you know, I actually own some plots of land near your garden, and thank you for this gift. Let me give you the four acres next to you so that you can continue to cultivate and grow good things. And the man said, thank you so much. At the same time, there was a wealthy nobleman in the court, and he overheard this, and he thought to himself, if he got four acres for a carrot, (laughs) what if I gave him something bigger? And so he came back the next day, and he brought this big, beautiful horse that he had. And he said, oh, king, I am so grateful for you, and I want to bring to you today this beautiful horse that I have for you. And the king said, thank you so much. You may leave now. The man thought to himself, what is happening? And as he walked out, the king said, no, look back at me. Let me explain. You see, the man gave me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. See, the truth is, if we are doing works for our own reference, we've never done works of love. The motivation to live a good life is love for the one who has secured our life. We are not saved because of our works. We are saved because of Jesus This passage tells us then how we're saved and what motivates us to live differently. So now let's continue in verse 11. In verse 11, Paul continues by explaining how God has changed his life by this gospel. Verse 11, he says, For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. I have a calling and a purpose. We all do when we come to know Jesus, even if it's distinct in its particularities. But now verse 12, notice how he has returned to the two words I showed you from verse 8. Remember in verse 8 he said, don't be ashamed, share in suffering. Now verse 12 he says, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. Why is Paul not ashamed? Why is he able to face anything? Because of the hope that is secured in whom he has believed. So look in the end of verse 12. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Depending on the English translation you have in front of you, half of them say what has been entrusted to me, and the other half say what I have entrusted to him. And I could totally geek out on that for the next ten minutes. (laughs) I won't do that, though. I'll simply tell you I'm convinced the correct answer is not, unfortunately, what the ESV has. The correct answer is what I have entrusted to him. Paul is saying, I am convinced that I cannot be ashamed and in face suffering because I know him in whom I have believed. I have given myself to him. I trust him with my soul in life or death. Did you know that your conviction... About the future drastically alters your interpretation of the present. Imagine two people who work the exact same job. They have the exact same responsibilities. But one of them is making $2,000 a month and the other is making $2 million a month. But they don't know that. One day they're out at lunch and the one person says, this job is really boring and really tedious. And the other person says, I love this job. (laughs) Can you imagine which is which? The one whose conviction in future good allows them to interpret their present circumstances through it. Sometimes there are tape replays of athletic games. And if you've ever watched a game with someone when you've already seen it, and they're watching the sports game for the first time, You have a different experience when you know the outcome versus not knowing the outcome. Paul says, I know whom I believed. I'm convinced of what he's able to keep. That's why I can live how I live today. See, there's a hope that can face anything. Maybe this morning you're thinking, Josh, that sounds like really nice pie-in-the-sky church talk, but I don't see how that actually would impact people in their real life. Um, Well, I think a good example of that, and I could give many, but an example I like is 1947, Howard Thurman. He was a Boston University scholar, and he is an African-American, and he gave a talk at Harvard in that year. And his talk was about showing how the spirituals that African-American slaves sang gave them hope to face horrible circumstances in this present world. The hope that they had in what would come is what enabled them to live with unexplainable joy and confidence in present circumstances. Here's what he said in his talk at Harvard in that year. He wrote, Out of their songs grew the conviction that this universe will not ultimately deny the demands of love and longing because it hinges on the hope of immortality and the issue of immortality hinges on God. Rather than it making them Unable to live well, he argues this. It taught a people how to ride high in life, to look squarely in the face those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope, and to use facts as raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that their environment, with all its cruelty, could not crush. The hope they had beyond this world enabled them to reject annihilation and affirm a terrible right to live. The reason their hope allowed them to live in this world is because it was hope beyond this world. Now, we live in a cultural moment where belief in God is waning, and there's a rise of secularism, and many people no longer believe there's anything after this life. Many people think that when you die, that's it. Your consciousness is over. There's nothing that happens afterwards. A good popular example of this is what we read in the philosophical movie called The Lion King. I don't know if you're familiar with it. There's this great spot in The Lion King where Simba, the baby lion, is talking to the adult lion, and he's asking why it's okay for lions to eat antelopes. And the dad tries to explain, well, you know, the antelopes die, and they become grass, and then we eat the grass, and that son is the circle of life. But what would it look like if you actually believed that that's how it works, if there's nothing beyond this world to put your hope in? Well, we have an example. The philosopher Peter Kreeft shares a true story of a seven-year-old whose cousin, a three-year-old, died very sadly and unexpectedly. So the seven-year-old came to his mother, and his mother is a thoroughly convinced secularist that has no confidence in anything beyond this world. And so he asked his mother, My three-year-old cousin is dead. Where is he? And here's what she said. Your cousin has gone back to earth, from which we all come. Death is a natural part of the cycle of life. And so when you see the earth put forth flowers next spring, you can know it's your cousin's life that is fertilizing those flowers. And he responded by running out of the room screaming, I don't want him to be fertilizer. Who can blame him? See, what the Bible is saying here in verse 12 is I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him. It is a confidence in personal perpetuity. I will continue to live forever as a self because Jesus Christ is holding myself. And he has abolished death and he has given immortality and life. See, this morning, I hope you noticed when our brother read... Luke 24. There's this amazing thing that happens in all of the gospel accounts. After Jesus has risen from the dead, everybody he sees who he knew before take a minute to recognize him. They recognize him, but it takes a minute because he's glorified. The Bible tells us that we share, through faith in Christ, his death, his resurrection, and his glorification, which means that anybody who puts their faith in Jesus one day will be fully glorified. Here's my best guess of what that'll be like. Have you ever had a good friend from elementary school, and then your paths part ways, and you haven't seen them for years, and then you reconnect maybe when you're in your 20s, and you're at a grocery store, and you say, hey, is that you? wow, look at you now, you've really grown to be, wow, it's so great to see you. I think in heaven something similar will happen. We'll see each other and, wait, hey, is that you? Wow, it's so great to see you. And it'll take a second because all of the shortcomings, which were our failures, are now permanently removed and we're the radiant splendor that God was always intending to make us. It takes a second to recognize this, but we'll say, is that you? That's what I always hoped and knew God could make you. John Updike, not normally thought of as a Christian, I think put his finger on it when he put it this way. I have the persistent sensation that in my life and art, I am just beginning. Paul is saying something similar. I know whom I have believed And let me show you from verses 13 and 14 that when you know who holds tomorrow, you can live boldly today. So look in verse 13. He just told them, don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid to suffer. Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Follow the pattern. Don't be ashamed of it. Now verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. In Romans 8 verse 18, Paul will say, I am convinced that the suffering of this life is not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to follow. When you know the future and the hope that is being brought to bear in the future, you can live confidently in the present. The faith and love in verse 13 are emanating from Christ Jesus. The ability to live guarding the good deposit in verse 14 is from the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. All the power is, like he said in verse 7, from God. Not a spirit of fear, but of power. Have you ever felt ashamed? Have you ever felt afraid of suffering, rejection, embarrassment, exclusion? I have good news for you. God is more than able to give you the power you need to face anything. Oswald Chambers wrote it well. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because of their unusual dependence on him. That made possible the unique display of his power and grace. And he chose and used somebody's only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities. This morning, be encouraged. We have hope. We have hope because of what we read in verse 9 and 10. Jesus has abolished death and brought light. Do you understand that when Jesus acted at Calvary on the cross and emerging from an empty tomb, he was acting as a representative for us? You and I, no matter how much you cheer for something... And as much as you get excited about it, it is not literally life or death. I'm a big Michigan fan. I keep track of what Ohio State's doing. I get very upset about this in the offseason. Some of you are Duke fans. Some of you are North Carolina fans. Some of you are NC State fans. I'll say no more about any of that topic. But whether your team wins or loses, you get excited. But whether your team wins or loses doesn't actually mean your life begins or ends. But did you know that when David fought Goliath, that's what was at stake? David's out there. Goliath's out there. One side wins. The other side loses and their life is over. The, the people on the field are the representation of everybody on the sidelines. Imagine you're one of the disciples. You're John or you're Matthew or you're Peter. You've, for the last three years, followed Jesus. You've put all your hope in him. And here he comes, your representative on Mount Calvary. And then He dies. Which is why we're actually not surprised to read in the gospel accounts, they went fishing. It's over. (laughs) We put our whole lives into this guy. And now, what could possibly happen now that he's died? But then three days later, just as he said, he rose from the dead. See, our life was literally at stake when Jesus represented us. And here's the good news. When death swallowed him, God vindicated him, and he cut a hole through the back of it and emerged from the empty tomb. That means we won't die if we are united to Jesus. He's the resurrection and the life. While we're here on earth struggling, we sing faith to each other. We sing things like, Jesus lives, and death is now, but my entrance into glory. Courage then, my soul, for thou hast a crown of life before thee. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, actually, Paul will say, Call on the Lord along with those who call on him from a pure, sincere heart. And I want to remind you, On Easter Sunday, because we do struggle in our faith, one of the best encouragements God gives us is an imperfect but helpful community that points us to the person who is perfect, who points us to Jesus. Church family, do you know that when you're singing these songs together and we see each other, you're helping us endure when we feel like quitting. You're helping us hope when we feel like despair. You're helping us have faith when we feel shame. And you're pointing us to Christ when we face suffering. We call upon the Lord together. So this morning's passage tells us in verse 12. I know whom I have believed. Do you? Who or what is the true ground of your confidence in life or death? Who or what are you putting all your hope in? Friend. It cannot be your works. It must be Christ. This morning, transfer all your trust and all your good works and all your rebellion or what you think might happen. Transfer it to Jesus. This morning, when you feel discouraged and when you feel ashamed, I want to remind you of this. Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God who created the world, was led to a cross and they stripped him of all of his clothing. Then they gambled over his clothing. Then they spat at him and slapped him. And while he was blindfolded, they made him guess who hit him. Do you see what he's experiencing? Shame and suffering. He was bearing our shame and our suffering. And when he was nailed to that central cross, mocked by onlookers and from the thief on the one side, He was able to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus bore our shame so that we would never have to bear it. And he suffered our suffering so that we would never have to experience it. So be encouraged. God has raised him from the dead. But one last final caution. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're thinking, Josh, you know, shame and suffering and Christ. I get all that. But to be honest, I think Christianity is really the oppressive, regressive movement. I think Christianity is really in the wrong. I've spent my life being a good person, and I'm on the right side of all the important positions, and I have the right connections, and I have the right views. I don't need any of this stuff. You know, the person who wrote this book thought the same thing. (laughs) And then he met Jesus. The Apostle Paul had all the right connections. He was a highly respected Jew. He had all the right educational achievements. If you think the acceptance rates at colleges here are difficult, in his day, the rabbi had to choose you. He was chosen for all the fullest advancement. He had all the meteoric rise in front of him, and then he met Jesus Perhaps this morning you think, well, yeah, blind beggars need Jesus, but not people who have everything that they need. But then Paul met Jesus, and he found out something very important. Yes, he was on the right side of his peers. He was on the right side of all the important views. But because he didn't have Jesus, he was on the wrong side of God. So, friend, here this morning, until you come to trust in Jesus alone, you're on the wrong side of God. The shame and suffering that Christ bore is not born for you until you come to put your faith in him. John 3.36 says, He who has the Son has life, but whoever does not have the Son will not see life. The wrath of God remains on him. So this morning, don't be on the right side of your peers. Be on the right side of God through faith in Jesus. Let's go to him together in prayer. God, I thank you, Lord, for bracingly direct truth from 2 Timothy 1. Thank you that you tell us so clearly that there is a hope that can face anything. It can face shame or suffering. And that hope is not in something we have done or could do. It is secured by what Jesus has done for us. Thank you, Lord, for grace that saves through through Christ. Perhaps someone this morning is like the Apostle Paul before he met Jesus, thinking... I'm fine. I'm respected. But Lord, the opinion that matters most is our Creator's. And until we come through the blood and come through Jesus, there is no hope in life or death. Help them, Lord, to be on the right side of God by trusting in your Son. Lord, I also pray for those of us that are here that can easily find ourselves afraid and easily find ourselves ashamed. Ashamed to tell the name of Jesus, ashamed to be associated with Jesus, ashamed to think people find us extreme. So Lord, let us be fully joyful if we are associated rightly with the name of Jesus. Because His name is the name above all names. His name is the name at which every knee will bow. And Lord, He is the one who abolished death and brought life and brought light. Thank you, Lord. Easter. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scalley, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcrolley.com. That's e b c r a l e i g h.com.